Welcome back. This is Andy, and this is the Poor Pearls Almanac. Today, we're joined to discuss a recently released book, Hoofprints on the Land, from Ilsa Kola Rolfson. This book explores the stories of pastoralism across the globe and its place in the world today. After decades of working with pastoralists in India, Ilsa discusses living around camels, the role modern agriculture has played in these age-old practices, and much, much more. Ilsa started as a veterinarian and found her way into pastoralism through a local herder. We talk about her story, the nuances of pastoralism in a modern world, and so much more in this conversation. Not only has Ilsa written extensively on camels and pastoralism, she's involved with multiple organizations, including the League for Pastoral Peoples and Endogenous Livestock Development that she co-founded in 1992, as well as LPPS, a local organization in Rajasthan, India, and is also working with international organizations such as FAO, GIZ, UNDP, World Bank, and others on matters related to livestock. Take a look in the notes for the show for links to her projects and to find out where you can get this book. Elsa, thanks so much for joining us. So we're here to talk about your newest book, Hoofprints on the Land. You talk about this a little bit, but I really want to know, how did you get into the world of camels? Oh, well, um, it's a long story. <laughs> so uh, I'm basically, I'm an animal lover. I grew up with animals, uh, with horses and dogs. I worked on a farm and, and all that. So I studied veterinary medicine in order to, it seemed like the natural choice. But once I had graduated, I realized I wasn't really cut out for being a veterinarian. And I didn't like the work very much, um, neither the the large, the farm animals, nor the small animals were really appealing to me. So I was looking for something new to do. <laughs> and uh, cut a long story short, I got interested in archaeology. And archaeologists need people to identify the animal bones that they dig up on their sites. To then they can, uh, you know, that allows you to make conclusions about the past economy and ecology and so on. So I ended up as a volunteer on a excavation in Jordan, in the Jordan Valley. And there was this beautiful camel herd passing by every morning. And there was such harmony between the herder and the camels. So they, they were, he was singing to them and they were happy and walking along and uh, they were communicating with each other. So it just appealed to me that kind of um, human-animal relationship. And then I started uh, reading about uh, camels and I found out how incredibly useful they are in arid areas. I also got interested in the Bedouin culture, which was my kind of my introduction to pastoralists. And uh, then I just, I did my PhD on camel domestication and I worked uh, for 10 years on archaeological sites as an archaeozoologist. And then I got tired working just with uh, bones you know i want to see some live uh, live camels <laughs> live animals again and i had opportunity to go to uh, india on a fellowship to study uh, camel husbandry there and uh, i had no intention at that time to uh, spend uh, kind of the rest of my life there but it just happened i got really intrigued by the that the raika camel culture and uh, so i've been involved with that ever since and i believe it's a uh, the way pastors keep their animals, it's it's ethical and it's 
in harmony with the environment and it's something we ought to treasure and something we can learn from. Yeah. That's why I wrote that book. I mean, just to actually to show also that pastoralism is not really a, a marginal thing. It's actually, it may be marginal in, Nor in North America and in Europe, but in Africa and Asia, uh, South America too, it, the huge parts of the world that are mostly managed by pastoralists, um, uh, farming, crop farming, just uh, is much smaller in aerial extent. So there's one thing you brought up that I, I want to kind of pick at a little bit, and it's this idea of domestication. Yeah. So, you know, we, we think of domestication in a very linear sense, at least here in the US, I think, where domestication means higher productivity, lower inputs, but also increased reliance on humans for survival, whether that's a wheat crop or uh, a cow or whatever mm -hmm. it might be. I, I feel like, and I've never really thought about it until as you were speaking, pastoralism doesn't really fit into that dichotomy, right? No, I, I don't think it does. Um, actually, I mean, if you're uh, domestication, I mean, is one is the process that took place in prehistory of, uh, you know, turn domesticating the wild animals into livestock, kind of. And yes, uh, so the Western thinking has been that this was kind of a process of domination where you fit, um, you know, where you control everything about the animal. But uh, this is actually, it's this is also a Western concept. Uh, so pastors have the idea actually of coexistence uh, with the animals. It's a it's a dialogue between animals and and between people, and it's not uh, definitely doesn't have much to do with domination. I mean, there can be some domination sometimes, but basically the herders they listen to their animals. They move when the animals want to move. So it's a very uh, different uh, way of looking at animals. But also, uh, you were saying that the animals rely on uh, humans. So that's the situation in, um, yeah, I mean, with our so-called high-yielding breeds, like Holstein Friesian cows or, or these hybrid pigs or, or chicken. Or so they have been bred only for um, performance and for yields, regardless of their fitness or ability to survive. And pastors actually, they select for different uh, qualities. They don't just, um, you know, yields is one aspect, one among many. For them, it's important that the animal is disease res resistant, that it's friendly to humans, that you can build up a relationship with it, a good maternal instincts, uh, the ability to walk long distances. All these aspects are considered when they make breeding decisions. So that's why they are also the ones who have, who, are the guardians of our domestic animal diversity. Yeah, I think about my own sheep and um, as I wanted something, you know, I was thinking more along those lines of that linearity of I want something that's a little bit more resilient. And in that process, I was like, I don't know if I want something that's super friendly to people. But now in retrospect, I'm like trying to build that relationship because it is so important to have the that trust that really exists between um the, the person stewarding the animals and the animal itself. Yeah, otherwise it's not, unless that trust is there, um, it's not possible you know, for a single herder to move with 50 camels through the landscape, you know, to keep them together. And um, it's all, yeah, the uh, trust has to be there, mutual trust also. One of the things I really appreciate about this book is that you 
you're incredibly thorough in the research and how you incorporate so many different uh, pastoralist practices across the globe. It's not just focused, despite your knowledge and experience in India, you, you talk about Africa, you talk about Northern Europe and the Arctic. There's this linearity that exists throughout humanity, right, of this relationship with landscape and the animals that inhabit it. I think that's really important when we start thinking about what it means to be human, what it means to be stewards of the landscape in a way that I, I don't think even, you know, regenerative agriculture or uh, I think traditional like rewilding understandings really address. And I, I think that's really important. Was there anything that kind of surprised you when you were doing that research or anything that reinforced what you previously believed? Uh, well, I mean, I... Uh, I when I came there, I knew nothing basically, uh, and there uh, there hadn't been anything written about uh, about the Raika pastors. There was nothing in the literature at that time, so I was just uh, totally astonished about that 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 closeness. How uh, you know, like little toddlers, they can move around these you know huge big camels and uh, are not nobody's afraid that anything will happen to them. Uh, that, that was totally different from what I'd learned in veterinary medicine, where you always thought you have to restrain the animal before you go near it, and where also some animals can be vicious, like male animal male bulls or, or so. Yeah, at, the, at, for, at first I was just kind of floored by that intimacy between uh, animals and people, and then then I, also it was the, the aesthetics also really played a big role. I mean, the, the Raika, they have this big red turban, and then... Uh, uh, I mean, it just all looks very nice. It's it's very wonderful. And then I tried to understand how this relationship actually developed historically. And I also I came to the conclusion that, uh, I mean, this relationship is actually, it's perfect. It's good for the animals. It's uh, good for the people. It's good for the environment. Uh, I mean, there, there's just nothing wrong with it. But everybody was just seeing animal scientists they were just seeing it as something very quaint, uh, you know, not exactly. I mean, it's a nice photo opportunity. And it took me years to myself realize uh, how, how important this actually is. And I mean, I've spent the last 30 years seeing shepherds also. Every day they go into the forest and then they come back. They uh, deposit their manure there. The manure gets sold for um, a substantial amount of money. And they just use the forest without having any negative impact on it. In fact, they support uh, germination of, of uh, acacia trees and all these things. So it took a long time for me also to think in and to understand how what I'm I'm actually witnessing. Yeah, one of the things you talk about in the book, and you, you touch on it really lightly, and I understand why, is the role that this plays in uh, the future of food systems. Okay. And, you know, there's this push to move away from meat, right? And um, like, there's some very valid reasons why that that is um, something that's being advocated for, right? You look at the inhumane conditions in um, slaughterhouses and things like that. It's really easy to be like, yes, this is the solution. But you address that there's there's a lot more to it in terms of the landscapes where animals can graze and uh, the limitations of agriculture as we think of it today, right? And that ultimately, these animals are incredibly necessary to have livable landscapes. Exactly. In India, they're also very important actually for yeah organic manure production. They are very much integrated uh, with the crop cultivation. So after the harvest has happened, the sheep come or sometimes the cattle or the camel 
and they pin them on on those harvested fields just for for uh, manuring them and that is is such an amazing system you know because the, the organic fertilizer it's directly de- deposited there on those fields it, a totally in a totally solar powered way you know there's no fossil fuels nothing uh, involved so this is actually what i see as the big problem in um in agriculture in general, is that separation into crops. People are either crop people or they are livestock people, but we need to bring them together because that's the way it is in nature as well. All ecosystems are composed of plants and of animals. And you need the, I mean, mean, it's just some really basic principles. So the plants, they can, uh, they have that photosynthesis capacity. So they, um, they build the energy. And if animals are not there, then, uh, I mean, that energy keeps building and building, then you have the forest fire, then you have the fires. And animals are also necessary, I mean, to, to decompose and to manure, to get that back into the soil for that whole soil cycle as well. So we need to really, I mean, that principle to reintegrate crops and livestock. That's, I, I think, it's a basic principle we need to um, start implementing again. <laughs> yeah, I think it speaks to a, a really commodified understanding of nature, right? Where these are different products that come out yeah. of nature, therefore, much like an assembly line, they would go in different assembly lines. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and that's just not really how it works. And we're kind of living through the effects of that in a lot of ways. We, a couple of weeks ago, had Vijay Thalam on, who has been involved with the Andhra Pradesh natural farming process, mm-hmm. which I'm sure you're familiar with. And he, he talks extensively about this idea of biostimulants, and it's basically uh, utilizing animal dung and things like that into creating natural farming systems. And while that's something that'll be celebrated as it continues to grow, I worry that the animal component will get missed in that conversation of like, okay, we found an organic way to grow food without petrochemicals. Mm-hmm. And that's a great thing. But we have to remember where that's coming from and how do we incorporate that into a holistic understanding of uh, sustainable ecosystems and agriculture? You know, no, I wasn't actually aware of that. I mean, that they have found ways now of, uh, without animals, of doing everything uh, no, organically. It is, it is with animals. It's with yeah. uh, like fermenting the, the uh, cow dung and things like that mm-hmm. and then being able to extract some of those uh, nutrients and the biology to help soils recover from mm-hmm. you know traditional agriculture, okay. and um, it, I think it's really optimistic. But again, it I, I worry that in that process we forget that the animals are the thing driving oh, that. Right yeah. mm-hmm. at the end of the day, that's the that's the motor that keeps that system going, and um, you know we we have to keep in mind how those animals relate to that landscape, right? Whether it's the foods that they're eating, the the greens uh, that are not digestible by people or, yeah. you know, taking care of invasives. And this is something that's becoming more popular here in the U.S. is that sheep are being used for uh, grazing invasives that otherwise would be too hard, like in a forest setting, IVs, things like that, um, where that can be particularly really useful and beneficial for the landscape. But ultimately, there's nothing that can beat an animal to go in and understand the nuance of the landscape in a way we don't, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, animals are also, there are also two other aspects to that. One, I mean, in Rajasthan, I see how it's possible by the means of animal, uh, through animals to get a second harvest out of the same piece of land. So we have uh, most of the, the land is only cultivated in the rainy season during the monsoon. So for three months. And then afterwards, we have 
one example, we have these huge thistles growing. Now, I mean, the fields are covered in thistles. And then the camels come in and they love those thistles. And they so they clear the land which the farmer loves and they leave their manure. And it, this, these thistles, uh, they make the milk really uh, sweet and um, and healthy. So that's one aspect. The other aspect is also that we need the animals. I mean, for our insect population, we need uh, uh, the animals in the landscape. Here in Germany, uh, some people think that the the reduction in insects is also due to the fact that there are no um, cows anymore on the pastures, and because those, those cow pads, I mean, they're like incubation uh, things for uh, for insects. And uh, then, I mean, the third the third aspect is also that. If you look at the so-called agricultural land as defined by the Food and Agriculture Organization of the United Nations, only one third of that is arable. About roughly two thirds, you can only be uh, use it via uh, livestock. <laughs> so that shows yeah. you the importance. Okay, I mean you can be vegan also in some uh, in in a country with a temperate climate where it rains all the time, but in other large parts of the world, it's it doesn't make a lot of sense, yeah. No, it, it relies entirely on industrial infrastructure, right? Mm. There's a reason why cities are the most easy places to be vegetarian or vegan is yeah. because products can be processed and created and shelf-stable for that to happen. Mm -hmm. And there's nothing necessarily wrong with it, but understanding that context I think is really important. One of the things you talk about in the book as well about the livestock on the landscape and something I, I don't think gets enough attention in uh, talking about the importance of keeping these systems around is the ancestral knowledge that's passed down within a herd. And that's something we think about, okay, we're just going to bring these land, these animals back on the landscape. And, you know, I, you know, I, I have sheep, like I said, and one of the things we hear all the time from like the um, agricultural education side of things is that, you know, the extension schools and things like that, that you can't feed XYZ to an animal or they'll die. And that's almost not always, but many times not the case. It's just they can only eat a little bit of it, mm -hmm. but they don't know that because they've never been in a landscape where that's existed before. They don't have, you know, parents, other of their species eating a little bit, walking away. And a lot of times those plants can be very medicinal, you know, whether yeah. it's, um, you know, specific leaves and things like that. And we've, we're losing all of that, even if we think we're just going to bring these animals back on this landscape. Uh, without this, you know, linear ancestral knowledge being passed down, a lot of that gets lost. And that's why it's so important to protect a lot of these, these uh, pastoralists. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I worked for, uh, many years, my organization, the League for Pastoral Peoples, uh, with the FAO, trying to influence them that when the, when the FAO got concerned about that huge loss of domestic animal diversity of, uh, you know, the seven, eight thousand livestock breeds that existed being replaced by just a, a few of them. And then, I mean, their preferred way of addressing the situation is to have exit banks, uh, to store semen or to store embryos. Uh, and that just doesn't uh, okay. It, it's okay as a backup, but if you want to conserve the biodiversity, the lives of biodiversity, you need to support those pastures to stay in those areas uh, to which those livestock has been adapted over over centuries and and adapted and learned where it knows how to um, uh, what to eat and what not to eat exactly yeah and this is something here in the US or at least in North America we've seen a lot of with the corn 
where this idea of like storing corn genetic diversity is so important because mm-hmm. it's the backbone of all of the agriculture basically but putting it in refrigeration is not a solution because it's not you go and plant it and if you don't understand and if the plant doesn't have that relationship and have continued to evolve with mm-hmm. that ecosystem it's just not going to be as successful as it would have otherwise and livestock it becomes even more complicated yeah. right yeah and also uh, i mean like disease pressures you know i mean new diseases are coming about all the time and then those i mean they are frozen in time those uh, <laughs> seeds are or steam and they they don't have any opportunity to adapt and uh, to develop any resistance gradually thanks for tuning in to the poor pro's almanac We've been exploring new areas of content, including new podcasts such as Tomorrow Today and the Gastropocene with yours truly, but also building a network with folks like Death and Friends. We're also building gardening resources and have a bunch of other content coming in the future. If you'd like to get more information or to sign up for our newsletter where we announce new projects, head over to poorproles.com and click on the Our Email List tab. The email list is only used for important, newsworthy content, and we won't clog your inbox, and you'll get less than six emails a year. That's poorproles.com at the Our Email List tab. So one thing you talk about in one chapter of the book is seeing that people were changing to more contemporary conventional breeds, mm-hmm. and um, you seemed a little concerned with it at first in the book, and I've I would absolutely agree with you. And it seems like as the longer you spent time with the people that had made those transitions, um, the more you were able to say they they understood what they needed better than you would. And um, I, I'm really interested about that, that emotional piece where we think about these practices as being like static or like evolving outside of the scope of like the hegemonic narrative, right? This like globalized system that is like pushing specific breeds. But it's like a lot more complicated than that. And there are things that these folks that know what they're doing can kind of pull out of the the creations we have made in the rest of the world, so mm-hmm. to speak. Well, uh, it's unfortunately, uh, I mean, it's, it's animal scientists who have been um, pushing all this. And I mean, a, a huge amount of money is being spent in trying to promote these, um, the high performing superior breeds. But people realize very fast that that it doesn't work, uh, and the the they actually they do the Raika they consistently they do some experimental breeding. They buy a a ram here or there, and they see how the offspring does uh, does, and if it does well, then they continue. If it doesn't, they stop it. But there is a lot of uh, financial, but a government program on the other hand, it goes on and on and on. <laughs> There's no correction and. Uh, and it's always, I mean, this is my, my bone or what, what you call it? My uh, bone to pick the, yeah, the bone to pick these people, the Rika, they have so much knowledge. They know so much more than any of the animal scientists. I would say the, because the animal scientists they only work on the farm, on the government farm under controlled uh, conditions. And then they just measure, you know, how much feed do I give and how much milk or meat is coming out out and, and, and nothing else so they don't consider the you know the climatic uh, challenges animals are subjected to or none of these so they have there's this reductive approach um the, the herders they have a holistic knowledge they 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 know the landscape they know their animals they know the quality of food that they're producing and that's what's missing in our uh, present time so that we have this hyper specialized um, 
scientists who just know one field, whatever it is, animal nutrition or parasitology or breeding, and, and they don't have that overall uh, thinking. Yeah, and that's really important. Yeah, that's the bone I really want to pick, and I know I'm yeah. going to be very unpopular with animal scientists, but it's the truth, unfortunately. It's hard to dismiss uh, <laughs> generational knowledge that go, you know, these families that have been doing this for hundreds, if not thousands mm -hmm. of years, and they, they know these animals better yeah. than, you know, anyone yeah. that's read them about them in a book. And like yeah. you said, worked with them in a sterile environment to say what's best. I mean, I, I'm not saying that their knowledge can't be improved or that it's always perfect, but at least it's knowledge that has worked so far and before you introduce any changes or, or so, you, you have to know the current status and maybe then identify some gaps or so, but not come in from the outside and, and say, oh, these people are so backward and so stupid and uh, we have to teach them. Uh, that, that's the thing. I mean, the, India is a very densely populated country and it is the largest producer of milk. It's the largest, uh, one of the largest beef, which is actually buffalo. It's not beef. It's buffalo meat exporters. The largest, I think, sheep and goat meat exporter. And that's all, uh, you know, on the basis of most of that is produced in pa pastoral system. And we, we've done a calculation that uh, more than 50% of the milk and more than 70% of the meat is actually produced in, uh, in pastoral systems, depending on common property resources. So that's huge. Yeah. Uh, so it means they're doing something right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And like, I had a, a lot of fun going through the sources for a lot of the stuff in your book because um, there's things you you wrote, and I'm like, that can't be true. Like, and, and like, I agreed with you, and then I like went to the source. And I'm like, that's unbelievable. There's like one stat about um, cow methane in the U.S. that you reference, where um, you make the case that like. Cows today produce 96% of the methane, or no, it's the other way around. It was wild game pre-colonization oh, produced 96% yeah. of the methane that cows today <laughs> in the U.S. do. And I'm like, that can't be right. And like, I, I'm not against like cattle rearing, mm -hmm. but I was like, that can't be right. And I looked it up and, you know, yeah. I was reading the paper that you cited. And I was like, it's, this is unbelievable. Yeah, it's a respectable uh, source. <laughs> yeah. And, and it's, I think it speaks to the... To, well, A, it speaks to the power of like companies that can sell a very specific narrative on why you know cattle are bad or whatever it might be. And like there's very, you know, it's like the reading between the lines, like which part of it is actually the bad part of this. But also like it, it does speak to the fact, the incredible power of livestock on a landscape and like what, what they're capable of doing um, both good and bad, what they can produce. Like you said, in a landscape where arable crops are not really possible. That's something we should not dismiss. Nope. And um, to, to get to the point, to this point, though, like, you know, we, we primarily have cattle here in the U.S. And um, there's been a very large push the last decade to return buffalo to the landscape. Yeah, I'm following that a little bit. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that that's uh, really great. But it, it it points to some interesting issues. And I think it, there's some parallels with India in particular in that we've developed so much of the countryside here. And now you're you're introducing a two ton animal to a landscape that is littered with suburban houses and small downtowns and cars and all of these things, you're butting heads of an ecological system that does not recognize property lines. And it fundamentally goes against the way we live our lives, you know, this materialist understanding of uh, what property is. And yeah. uh, I'm really interested about your thoughts about that and kind of what 
what a future looks like where we can try to balance these. Hmm. I don't not, know. <laughs> not to say you have to have an answer. I'm just kind of, I'm interested as someone that's done the research. I don't have an answer for that. Um, I just, yeah, I mean, the more I think about it, it's it's this concept of making, fencing off your own property, which is, which is a problem. And uh, yeah, so the pastoralists, actually, they've always, they rely on common property resources. I mean, land that is now, uh, usually it's owned by the state or, or, or so. And, and the thing is, you need to keep your animals moving, 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 moving. And the, as soon as you fence them, you, you stop them from moving. I, I also, I, I, I can't see how people are going to change their thinking about this, but we do have to uh, take care. I think that we leave space when we de- develop landscapes or land that we, we need to leave space for, uh, for animals to move. Yeah. I, I, I think it will maybe, uh, I don't know. I can't say anything about the situation in the U.S. I think that's very difficult. Uh, but uh, in, in countries where there are a lot of pastors, I think, I mean, to just leave, at least protect their grazing routes or their migration routes. And I also describe in uh, in the book the situation in Spain. Yes. Spain is that the uh, country they, they had bred that merino sheep with that wonderful um, wool and they had a monopoly on it. And uh, actually it was the, the wool, uh, you know, the profits from wool that uh, made Spain so rich that they could afford to send Columbus and uh, you know on his ship and um, <laughs> go to America and and so on. So, so they knew how for them how important it was to keep the merino sheep happy and healthy. So they developed this huge system of cañadas, uh, which I think one percent of Spain's surface is covered actually by these ancient drove roads, and they have. Uh, these are being revived currently. There's a strong movement in Spain to uh, revive them and to get animals moving, I mean, walking from their uh, winter grazing grounds to their summer grazing grounds in the mountains. And uh, again, I mean, there's been recent uh, law or an ancient law that had kind of people forgotten about. It has been reactivated and it gives the shepherds the right to move through Madrid, for instance. Yeah. Yeah, you are the only person I've ever t- I've uh, in my reading about merino sheep that's ever talked about their role in um, keeping oak trees or the cork yeah. trees mm-hmm. uh, alive in those dehesa systems because mm-hmm. uh, that seems to be the issue. Is people are like how how do we graze on these landscapes and then still allow uh, new saplings to come up because mm-hmm. they're getting hit so hard? And uh, you address it really succinctly in your yeah. book. I, in a way that I, I was like, oh yeah, that that makes a lot of sense. How come I've never seen anyone talk about this? <laughs> uh, and that how important that grazing uh, longevity is, right? Mm. So I don't I don't want to keep fawning over your book, but it really it really oh, was you. really great. <laughs> but you really read it, I, I must say. Yeah. <laughs> As someone that spends a lot of time reading and researching about this kind of stuff, mm-hmm. I, it was just really thorough, and I think points to a lot of the nuance in the conversation that. Uh, sometimes gets lost in our internet culture where anything has to be shrunken into like an Instagram post or, you know, Facebook or whatever. Uh, and a lot gets lost in that because it's complicated. You're talking about thousands of years of evolution, co-evolution between the landscape, the animals and humans. And and we try to break it down into sound bites and it just, it doesn't work. No, it doesn't. One thing I do think that's really important to talk about when we're discussing these practices 
is the way that they play in a climate change. Because obviously, you know, you've brought up this point that it's really important to protect uh, these traditional passageways for pastoralists, right? But inevitably, those are going to change and probably fairly quickly over the next, you know, 100, 200 years because of climate change. And I'm really interested about your thoughts about how do we prepare for that? What is the role of pastoralism in that? And kind of, if you still have hope. No, no, I mean... uh... A, the pastors are the ones, I mean, the breeds that they have created, they are the ones with that resilience against drought, against high, uh, high temperatures, or sometimes even against extreme wetness. They are also sheep breeds which can cope with really, you know, continuous rain for for months. Uh, so they have uh, created these breeds, and I think they are our, you know, our best, one of our best tools for, for adapting to climate change, for one. So it's that that's the role of the, I mean one of the big things about uh, pastoralism. Uh, secondly, the fact that they are fossil fuel free economy, a way of producing food without fossil fuels. I mean, just imagine. I mean, such a resource. I mean, that's one uh, reason why uh, why it it can help uh, mitigate uh, climate change. And pastors are they they have this deeply ingrained flexibility also. You know, they can cope uh, yeah. uh, where, uh, wherever you put them. I mean, they know uh, they know how to deal with unexpected circumstances. They're very flexible and they're very resilient. But, I mean, that's them. They are like that. I don't know. Not many uh, people who are not used to it would be able to... Um, yeah, uh, it it, it exists very much outside the way we think of, right? Like we we think of yeah. linearity of like you know, in as a, a in agriculture, like all right, I've got cattle. How high is the grass? This is how much they're going to eat today. They're going to go over here and eat this mm-hmm. much tomorrow, and it's much different than that that thinking process, right? It's more about the bigger system instead of just mm-hmm. like the input output piece that you think of yeah. with like. Grass. Grass, yeah. Actually, you know, we're always talking of grass, but pastoralist animals, they eat a lot, many other things than grass. They eat uh, a lot of trees and shrubs and uh, like, when uh, eat lichen. So a huge uh, diversity of, of plants um, they eat. So it's not just, I always stumble about that, gra- you know, grass fed. Um, this is actually shrub fed, tree fed. I don't know. <laughs> um, yeah, shrub fed is shrub fed makes some really good uh, goat. I'll say that. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I, I was interested. You know, as climate change accelerates, I agree with you that that uh, these pastoralists will be resilient in the face of that. Do you think that's going to require? You know more input from the government to support them, uh, more more uh, willingness to reconsider what their traditional routes might look like in order to deal with the fact that things are accelerating past the speed of probably what animals can evolve co-evolve with, right? Yeah. Um, that things are just going to be a lot different. And I'm I'm curious as someone who spent decades around it, what your thoughts are around what this future looks like? No, no, absolutely. I mean, we need to protect uh, those grazing areas. Uh, it's it's really urgent because it is becoming more and more difficult for um, pastors in any country of the world to uh, rely on their animals because there's construction here and there's mining there and there's a nature um, a wildlife sanctuary here, there. And, and all, I mean, continuously that their areas are being uh, shrunk. So we really need to protect uh, those traditional areas and can't just all of develop all of them with uh, 
I don't know, wind energy, solar energy, and all uh, mining. But for that, it's necessary for for governments to understand really how how valuable pastoralists are. And I'm, you know, th- that the Convention on Biological Diversity just ended before Christmas in Montreal, where 30% of the land is to be protected. That was decided there. That's a big worry. If you know, if those 30%, it's in pa- pastoralist areas where nature it still looks like nature because they don't cultivate. So it's their areas that are affected. And if they were given the responsibility to manage those 30%, I'd I'd be all for it. But what usually happens is then the first thing happens, an area is protected and the pastors are kicked out. This is really a crucial point for our human survival, not just for the pastors, for everybody we don't think of nature as being this thing with humans. And it fundamentally is, and pastoralism is one of the ways that humans are fundamentally a part of a yeah, landscape. Exactly. And like I said earlier, you know, they can be incredibly impactful for reducing uh, invasive species pressure or just giving ecosystems a chance to fully develop, right? Mm. And again, we, we think of nature as this thing that's outside of us instead of what we're a part of. And that that's really challenging to kind of overcome. Now, for people that are listening and they agree 100% with what you're saying, what should people be doing to try to support pastoralism? Because it is something, that, again, it seems, especially here in the US, seems so far removed yeah, exactly, from our you know? day-to-day lives. Yeah. What are things we can do to support people that are doing this work? It, it, that is, a, is there anything it, we can do? <laughs> yeah. No, I mean... If we, I think we need to spread a more balanced view of livestock. This is really uh, so crucial that we need to understand that livestock, it can be good and it can be bad, and we need to keep it in a way that's good for, for everybody. Rather than, uh, I actually think that instead of going vegan, it makes much more sense to selectively purchase products from animals where you know that they have been kept uh, kept well and had a uh, had a good life i don't know if that possibility exists in the us i have no idea but instead of going for plant based diet i mean the keyword is to go for planetary uh, uh, diets which which recognize that animals are part of any agro ecosystem so i'm if i can tell this story yeah so um I'm working together with an, a real animal a lover, an American, a young woman from America who lives in uh, now in Dubai. And ever since she used to have lots of health problems, and since she started drinking camel milk, her health has entirely improved. So she got, she's a personal trainer, and she got into making. She start has a startup called Nomadic Nutrition, uh, where she makes energy bites based on camel milk powder. And she was not happy with sourcing the uh, the chamomile powder from an industrial system uh, in the Emirates. So she found us. She looked everywhere, and she found us. And uh, I mean, she's specifically buying our uh, the chamomile powder from the Raika uh, pastoralists, and that fills me with a lot of hope. Actually, yeah, people want solutions. The problem is those solutions that they want don't really exist yet. And it's going to take some uncomfortable growth. Yeah, exactly. They don't exist yet. Yeah. No? yeah. Mm. And speaking of growth, 
this book comes or just came out as of the date of this release, right? It came out of uh, January 5th, I believe. Exactly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's it's called Hoofprints on the Land and you can get it everywhere, right? Amazon, yeah. Chelsea Green, any of those good places, right? Yeah, it's widely available. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. I, I highly recommend it for folks that are listening. It's a really great book. Um, do you have any uh, social medias or anything that you use publicly if people want to see your camels or anything um, fun like that? Yeah, uh, we're on Insta I'm in on Instagram, Ilza Cola, I think. On Twitter, also Ilza Cola. And also our company, Camel Charisma, we're also on uh, Instagram. And uh, there are lots of uh, pictures of camels there. Yeah, uh, yeah, <laughs> I'll be there for the products. camels. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, Elsa, this has been fantastic. Uh, I appreciate your time so much. Thank you for the book. It was really great. I'm definitely looking forward to seeing what other projects you'll be getting up to after this book is out. Yeah, thank you so much, Andy, for a great pleasure to talk to you. Thank you. Have a good one. Take, take care. Yeah. <laughs>